You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season now's the time to buy at fisher homes for a limited time only enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375 percent apr 6.139 percent apr with these exclusive lower rates you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home financing provided by victory mortgage llc nmls 461249 equal housing lender I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. One of my favorite parts of any day is reading bedtime stories with my kids, and I've come to treasure some of the books we read together. It takes a special talent to combine words and pictures that delight, inspire, and can be enjoyed again and again and again. My guest today, Marla Frazee, is one of those talents. She's an award-winning children's book author and illustrator, and she wrote a book that's been particularly important in my life, Boss Baby. Playing the business suit-wearing, hard-charging infant has been the role of a lifetime. Marla Frazee says she tackles serious topics in her work, such as babies, birthday cake, boxer shorts, boys, and roller coasters. She's been honored twice with the prestigious Caldecott Medal, among the books she's written and illustrated are A Couple of Boys Have the Best Week Ever, Walk On, and Santa Claus, the World's Number One Toy Expert. She's also illustrated books by other authors, such as All the World, The Seven Silly Eaters, Stars, and the New York Times bestselling Clementine series. Marla Frazee has always lived in Los Angeles, and she found her life's work early on. When I was a kid, I wanted to grow up and write and illustrate children's books, and I always said I was going to do it. And then I went to art school. I went to Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, mm -hmm. and I majored in illustration. And while I was there, I didn't really learn very much about publishing because it's on the West Coast. Most of publishing is on the East Coast. At the time, no one taught children's book illustration. And so while I had certain skills, I didn't really understand the component of writing stories with pictures. And I started as an illustrator and I wanted to illustrate somebody else's manuscript. That was the easier path in um, for me than writing and illustrating. And I thought I was ready. But as it turned out, I really had to learn what that meant, like how to write with pictures before I could get published. So that is what took me a long time. But I think 
the main components that really helped me kind of get to that point of a wanting to do it and then you know starting that path of trying to get published was you know I loved reading I loved drawing and I loved telling those stories so it was kind of like I always have done those those things so just a love of children's books throughout your own childhood was the foundation of this of this whole idea yeah, yeah I remember absolutely. what these books were like when I was a kid and there were some really strange ones that I remember, like Five Chinese Brothers. Remember Five Chinese oh, Brothers? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were some really odd stories that stayed with me. And beyond uh, Seuss and things like that, which everybody knows, you know, Go Dog Go and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I was uh, loved all of that. I remember I was in fifth grade when I became, you know, just addicted. I just couldn't stop reading The Phantom Tollbooth. I was obsessed with Norton Juster and The Phantom Tollbooth. And that book just, I mean, literally changed my life. All this heavy literature when I was 12 and 13 years old, I just couldn't stop reading. I was addicted to reading as I was, when I was a kid. And these children's books that made this stamp on me, I, I, I was obsessed with them. Now, with you, you live in the basic area that you went to school, and you haven't migrated very far from home, have you? <laughs> I haven't, actually. I, I've always lived in Southern California my right. whole life. So, yeah, somewhere around here. When I grew up, like my, the books that imprinted on me were, I was pretty young. Those early books, like from when I was four, five, six, those are the ones that made me want to do this. Such as? The Carrot Seed by Ruth Krauss and Crockett Johnson. Blueberries for Sal by Robert McCloskey. Harold and the Purple Crayon, Where the Wild Things Are. Right. Those classics were my childhood books, and I was lucky enough to have access to books. My mom had been an elementary school teacher, so we had some of these books. And we had a, a library in town and at my school as well. So, you know, I, I just always loved to read. I was obsessed with Schultz as well. I mean, even when, when, oh, when we too. were kids, yeah, watching those TV shows. And I was nuts and all about the, that. all stuff. the cartoon collections, the comic collections yeah. of Schultz. I studied those. I loved, you know, poured over them. Brilliant. But when you're in school... And you go to art school to study. Prior to going there at the college level, had you been drawing for years and writing for years and, and, and trying your hand at this? What were your attempts prior to that, if any? Well, a lot, yeah. So I, at, at home, I would come home from school and I would make little books, some of which were saved. So I still have some of them. And they really aren't exceptional in any way. Like, <laughs> I, like I like to go, when I talk to kids, show them because, look, you know, this is... Here's my beginnings. <laughs> yeah, like, you can do this too. But when I was about, well, I was in third grade. My best friend was in second grade, and she knew I wanted to be a children's book illustrator. So she said, her name is Lisa Gildam. We're still friends. I'll write it. You illustrate it. Let's get started. If this is what you want to do. It was almost like, if, if this is what you want to do, I'll help you do it. So she wrote this book, and I did the pictures, and then our, we showed it to our teachers, and they sent it to like the California State Fair. I, and then we lost interest in it. We've, you know, okay, it's somewhere. And then it won some award. So in the State Fair. So our school asked us if we would make another copy for the school library. So we tried to remember what it is that we had written and what I had drawn. We made another copy, but then it was in the library. So when we would go 
to our school, elementary school library, it was on the shelf. And that was a big deal to me, to walk into the school library and see it with all the books that I love so much. It was just right there in the library. I think that really cemented it for me. I just wanted to grow up and do that. Author and illustrator Marla Frazee, if you love hearing about the lives of illustrators, be sure to check out my conversation with New Yorker cartoonist Roz Chast. When she started submitting her work, she was drawing very tiny single-paneled cartoons. I think in this sort of logical but sort of slightly insane way, I thought if I just draw really small, nobody will get really angry with me. It was in April of 78. I dropped off this portfolio of cartoons to The New Yorker. I didn't know how many cartoons. Who was the editor then? Uh, William Sean. Sean. When I came back next week to pick them up, there was a note from him to come back and see him. Turned out I'd sold a cartoon, and he told me to come back every week. So that's kind of what I've been doing. Hear more of my conversation with Roz Chast at heresthething.org. After the break, Marla Frazee talks about what art school really taught her. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. 
If you ask most adults, they'll say they can't draw. But if you ask most children, they'll say they're great at drawing and coloring. I know for me, when I was a kid, I was proud of my caricature of Groucho Marx I drew on my bedroom wall. But I got discouraged when I saw how talented some of my classmates were. For Marla Frazee, that moment when someone decides they can't draw is a big loss. She wishes more kids were encouraged to keep going. I feel like it's not the child giving up as much as usually. I think either they're feeling like somehow you did that these other friends of yours could draw better than you. I mean, what you described about the Groucho Marx caricature, every illustrator has that feeling like, oh my God, that drawing I did just happened. It just right. is it just right. And like, I can't do that again. It was a miracle. Right. I mean, even after, a, you know, drawing for as my job for so long, I still have that feeling when I do a particular sketch, I'll never be able to do that again. How do I retain that energy or that freedom or, you know, the spontaneity of that drawing. So that story aside for a second, you know, I think a lot of kids stop because they've heard some criticism about their drawing or they're comparing themselves. But I feel like most of the people that go on to keep drawing do it for the same reason that kids just do what they do. They, they're more relaxed and calmer through the process of drawing as maybe a kid that goes on to do music is sort of able to to, sprite sports or whatever. But we do all start drawing. I mean, we all start by drawing. And we all start by reading pictures. Right. I was labeled early as as a kid that drew. At what age age did you know you had that gift? At what age did you begin even to see, as we often do in the eyes of adults, (laughs) adults who look at you going, wow. They're looking at each other going, wow. Yeah. When did that happen to you? Well, I feel like I knew personally when I was in kindergarten, something was different about the way I drew than my kindergarten colleagues. <laughs> you might um, <laughs> but we were supposed to draw this garden outside, and then we came in with our garden drawings, and it was our little vegetable garden. And all the drawings of, of the other kindergartners were as if they were floating above the garden, looking down at it which wasn't the way we could see it. We couldn't fly. You know, I drew it the way I saw it, which was from the ground level. And I remember thinking, this is different and weird. Like, why do they all think they could fly above the vegetable garden to draw it? I remember that that moment thinking, they're wrong. <laughs> you know, if you're going to draw what it looks like, that's not the way we saw it. So that was my first awareness that I think from looking at an outside control group, you know, like, oh, I'm seeing this differently. I remember in third grade, we were all painting at easels and we were supposed to paint the person. We were in pairs. So we would paint a kid and then we would switch roles and then they would paint us. So I was painting one of my classmates and by accident, my brush went into blue instead of whatever I was thinking was that I was painting her her neck and it hit the blue by accident and and my brush made like this big blue kind of ugh, mistake in my mind and i remember my teacher stood behind me and said i'll be right back and came back in with like the i don't know if it was an, another teacher I, I can't remember but 
brought some other adult in, and then they stood there and talked about how I had used this cool color to like paint the shadow under the neck of the, and it was a mistake. And I'm listening to them thinking, I mean, now I know that they thought already I was sort of the school artist, you know, the class artist or whatever. It was a brilliant mistake, a brilliant mistake. <laughs> now, when you go to art school for college to study art, when you come in there, I'm assuming because you've been doing this for so long, since kindergarten, and, and, and people are recognizing you as you go along, what becomes the purpose of art school, like a professional art school? What did you lack that they taught you? A lot. Art Center College of Design, one of the things that the school does is sort of inundates you as a student with so much work. It is so grueling and hard that you have to be nimble, fast, you have to prioritize, you have to produce. You can't be a perfectionist. You can't wait for inspiration. You just have to work. And actually doing that was probably the most important part of it. You just develop sort of a work ethic. That's, to me, the most important thing. There was all, all these foundational classes like drawing and painting and you know, color and typography, design, you know, all kinds of foundational things that also factored in. But I think the main component was just being able to produce. And by that, you mean what? Being able to? Like, here's a problem, solve it and do it fast. <laughs> Give me an example. Well, I was a commercial illustrator for a lot of years. So when I left, it was like advertising, a lot of editorial illustrations. So, you know. So you were doing all kinds of artwork. Yeah. Toys and games and, you know, t-shirt design, like um, McDonald's Happy Meals boxes I designed all the NFL team mascots for kids. So like each team had a child version of their mascot that was put onto t-shirts and stuffed animals. So I was working on a lot of jobs that, you know, I, it had nothing to do with children's books, but it was a job. So your first children's book you write is what? Roller Coaster. Okay. It came out in 2001. So I had illustrated a number of books right. before that. But that was the first I was the author and illustrator of. But you had illustrated other children's yeah. books. Other people were the authors of the book, and you did the illustrations. What's the yes. first one that was published that you illustrated? It was called World Famous Muriel and the Magic Mystery. It was what I thought was my foot in the door. Like, it hit, I had been out of school. I'd been working as an illustrator. I thought, great, I have this first book. Like, this is great. I'm finally in. And then after that came out, it was five years to the second book. And that five-year period was real frustrating because I thought I, you know, I'd broken into the field. And so my second book was called That Kookery. And then right after that, I got the third book, which was called The Seven Silly Eaters by Marianne Hoberman. And that book is still in print. And that was really the book that was more the foot in the door. How do animated children's movies come into your eyeline for the first time? Were you... Were you aware of them? Did you or did you watch them? Did you enjoy them? Because for me, I'm going to get to this after you answer this question. For me, the portal into all that world with my kids has led me to watch some films that have just been staggeringly beautiful to me and wonderful to me. I mean, there's some of these movies are really, they're so brilliantly done. 
What were animated films in your life? Did you were you aware of them and did you watch them? I did. I'm, you know, growing up in Southern California. One of my friends um, in our neighborhood, her father worked at Disney, and so somehow he had access to the films. And every time she had a birthday, we were invited over, and he would show them in his house on a Super Eight movie projector. And so we'd be in our pajamas. And these movies at the time, I don't know if you remember, but they were sort of vaulted for maybe seven years at a time. I'm not sure about the exact schedule, but let's say Cinderella would come out and then seven years later, it would maybe be released again. Yes. So like they would, they would come out and then they would go away. Yeah. But because of this access to these films with this friend who was in the neighborhood, we were seeing films that you know maybe just wouldn't have hit at the age that we were interested in seeing. I mean, it was great. And I just remember how magical it was to see them in that way. You know, I also would see them when they would come out, if possible, in the theater. So I grew up with with that love of those movies that felt very personal. And I just loved seeing them. My dad would teach uh, what they used to call social studies in his high school class. He taught American government and economics. He taught a course called Contemporary Problems. And they would screen films in the field outside in the school on a projector on, on a screen. Then he'd bring the equipment home. And he'd bring the films, the, the cans of film, to the house and set it up in our backyard in the summertime and show Bye Bye Birdie in our backyard <gasps> with our neighbors. That's and, we, and we were never great. more popular. We were never, this really, I guess, was the beginning of my, my brothers and I, our introduction to the power of the movie business. Because we would watch Bye Bye Birdie. We would probably watch it like four times. We watched it like four nights in a row. <laughs> we had four screenings in my, at the theater. And uh, we, <laughs> we, but we devoured great. all movies. We just couldn't get enough of movies. But with animated films, was there ever a discussion before Boss Baby of any of your other books being made into animated features or animated programming? No, that came out of nowhere for me. But when I left Art Center, I did work at Disney for a minute. Right. And I thought that was going to be my career, like to work at Disney and do something in animation. I lasted six weeks, as it turned out, because I wasn't really trained. And Disney animators typically know what they're doing when they get there, but I didn't. So I left six weeks after I got there and then just became a freelance illustrator who thought I wanted to do children's books. And that was sort of my path. But I always loved it. And I have a lot of books on animation. And I, I try and put a lot of sequential kind of illustrations in all my books like it's it's sort of a a frozen animation like each page is still and you turn the page to see the next bit of action but i i think of it as animation so when we heard boss baby had been you know there was interest in optioning it like i was blown away i had no idea that that was you know what you've gotten yourself into yeah i mean i was very i was like Wow, that's that was very exciting, but I had no, you know, I wasn't thinking about that. I wonder for you, when Boss Baby comes out for the first time, are you sitting there going, oh, God, this is not what I had in mind at all? <laughs> you know, I had seen Boss Baby emerge. So between the time it was optioned to the time I saw it as a finished film, right. I had seen it over those, I think, seven years. Yeah. 
But I do remember seeing it was probably about 60% finished. And I was with my agent. We were at DreamWorks, and it was a screening with a lot of, like, the people who had worked on the film. And it was, like, the first time we were seeing anything from, like, a linear experience. And afterwards, I needed to to sort of check myself out of the world for a couple hours. You know, everybody who knew me were like calling on my cell, wondering what I thought, like they wanted like an update. And I just, I had to kind of separate for a while and just think about what it meant to have something that was so personal to me that came out of my head, that was like my baby and was now this other thing. Mm -hmm that was related, but it was different. And I had already kind of thought I had done that, but seeing it, it was sort of like, I really needed to think about that for a while. And at the end of that period of time where I sort of took myself out of the world and then, and then when I re-entered, it was like, I was so excited about, it was like, I, I kind of succeeded in separating my own creative vision for whatever I thought I was doing with the book and whatever I, I didn't think I had expectations. Like I think that the movie should be a certain way or not be a certain way. It was just that it was so big and full and its own thing, its own voice. It's so strongly what it is Mm -hmm. in all kinds of amazing ways that I just needed to sort of accommodate to that. And I did. And I, I just find the whole thing to be just incredibly fun. Well, when I when I go and do those movies, I did Madagascar 2. I had a small part in that. I did Rise of the Guardians, which was not as successful as they hoped by any measure, but I had a lot of fun doing that piece for them. And then they came to me and said, well, you want to do Boss Baby? And I thought, okay, I'll give it a whirl because I love Tom McGrath. I thought Tom had the recipe. He knew how to put these films together. But when I go do the film... I go in there, and they take me on the little tour. We walk around this conference room, where they lay out the story as it was then. And I go in, and, you know, the first day or two you're doing this, you have no idea what you're doing, like what's too much, what's not enough. You're holding back. But you got to go in there and give it everything you had. And I, uh, and it's very similar to another character I played on the show, 30 Rock, where the guy is like, there's a public self and a private self. There's Boss Baby, who's always bombast and kind of commanding and, and intimidating people and, and pushing people around. And then Boss Baby, who gets real and is terrified and filled with fear and wants to be loved and begins to cave and get real. And the movie comes out, and I must say, my kids have watched the film many times the first film and we sat there and I would watch it and every time I watched it I saw something different that I didn't see and and animated films are so dense when you say to people you can do anything you want to in animation the question that follows that statement is well what have you got can your imagination keep up with the technology they're amazing. But the other thing I noticed, though, is that the film is made for a certain demographic. So it's these little kids and the pace. I mean, I watched the second Boss Baby, and I had a splitting headache when it was over. It's so fast-paced. And you realize this is what kids want. Kids want boom, 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 you know? I, I completely agree about the pace. I mean, the first time I saw it, it was just like out of breath. But I have to go back to what you said about like you voicing Boss Baby. One of the early conversations I remember my agent and I had, I think it was Damon Ross and Ramsey Nada, who's the producer. And Damon is the one who brought the book to DreamWorks. They knew that you were already attached, but they were like, who do you guys think should voice Boss Baby? 
Like if just pie in the sky, who would you want? And Steve and I are both like Alec Baldwin. And they're like, okay, well, you know, besides Alec Baldwin, who else? And we're like, well, well, we'll, we'll put together a list. And later we got on the phone together and we're like, well, that that's who? I mean, who who else? Anyway, you're, you're sort of the heart and soul and anchor of that movie. And plus I have a little keychain that came in some sort of swag bag in the first movie, like all the screenings and your voice emits from, it's in my oh God, um, glove no. compartment. Horrible. So, so occasionally if things joggle in there, all of a sudden I hear you. To me, it's the, the joy for me is because we all want to make animated content for our kids as actors and do that voice thing. But God, you really hope that you work with the right people. And uh, when we did the first Boss Baby, thank God for Tom. I mean, thank God for Tom. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. I love the heart that both of the, yes. you know, the Boss yes. Baby. Yeah, yes. and that's like the, the center of both of them. Just hearing him talk about how that came to be and how important that was to him. And I think it makes sort of like the, the fast pace and all the stuff that's going on, it's almost coming at you so quickly. It, may, it holds it all together always. And I think my books, my picture books, don't have necessarily a quality like that. But I do hope a child will read them again and again and go back to them over and over again. And that's always the hope. Always that there's like an emotional center, like an, a heartbeat, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. that. And that was the thing about Boss Baby that was probably one of the hardest things to make sure was still there as I worked on on that book. It was trickier than some of the other books that I've I've done. And I don't know if it's because, you know, I think comedy is trickier. It just is. So in the little documentary I saw, uh, the little four or five minute documentary of you, uh, a lot of sweeping shots and tracking shots in your uh, fortress of solitude there, your cabin, your studio, and lots of colored Beautifully sharpened. It was like a commercial for pencils <laughs> and beautiful cans or containers filled with bouquets of different colors of pencils. And I'm wondering, is that still its hand drawing? You're not doing it with a computer at all? No. Wow. No, not at all. The computer stresses me out. You know, maybe my age, maybe my temperament. I just don't find it relaxing. I would rather do a piece over again than struggle with some technological that I don't understand, some problem. Do most people who illustrate books these days do it old school way like you? No. Most are on computer? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really? Yeah, I think so. Or some part of it might be on computer. Like they might do a lot of traditional drawing or painting and then scan that, put it into a program and then work on it on the computer. I just don't. I just sort of do the whole thing <laughs> on a piece of paper, which... It sometimes takes me longer than it probably should, depending mm -hmm. on what I'm working on. I don't mind the time in. I actually like it. It's what you need to do to do what you do, correct? Yeah, yeah. And when you're in the cabin there, is that where you go? I remember, I think I might have mentioned this to you, that different people in my life have told me about their parents, Styron's children, Roth's intimates, Cheever's children, where the mother would say, whatever you do, don't knock on the door of that room or don't go out to the cabin. Don't, don't disturb dad. Which usually these well, are all three there men. There it is. There it is. There's the difference. <laughs> I mean, you're the you mom. Just, yeah, you're you're just getting disturbed on a, on a 15 minute basis. <laughs> yeah. Do you prefer concentration like any writer? Well, I'm still in the house in which my three sons were raised in. They're now grown up, so they're not here. But 
at the time that they were little, they all were in one bedroom of the house, and I had my studio in one bedroom. And that worked until my oldest was probably about 14 or something. And it was kind of like, they can't still be in one bedroom, the no. three three of them. And So what'd you do? Because I got four sons. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously, what did you do? Yeah, we built this little cabin in the backyard. So I'm, I'm in it right now, actually. It's 12 by 12 by 12. It's 12 high, too. And I love it. I still love it. But even when we built it in the backyard... They were still little, young, but they just, all of a sudden, I mean, it was good for all of us. It was good for them. It was good for me to have this sort of space between me being inside and helping with homework and doing the carpool, all that stuff, cooking, whatever, and having my own, you know, space that they, they really respected it. They would come out, they'd like look through the door and say, can I, you know, come in? And they, it was also important for them to see that this was like, a life that I had that was separate from them. And it was important to me. And they respected that. Did your children, did all, did three boys as they became teenagers require their own rooms? We never had that space, so. Never. So they grew mm-hmm. up together in the same room or you had two rooms for them? Well, then we had two rooms. So the oldest got his own room. Right. And then when he went to college, then the second oldest took over that room. And so then they each, then those two had their own room. Yeah, rooms. T- number two and number three had their own room, and number one was <laughs> yeah. gone. Yeah, I say, I say to my wife, I'm, I'm, I'm terrified of this because I feel like my kids got to have their own room or it's going to be mayhem. You know what's funny? The book I did, The Seven Silly Eaters that I mentioned, mm-hmm. it's seven kids that all live in this sort of cabinish house. And I illustrated their bedroom where they're all together. They're just all glommed together and in sort of an attic space. And so many kids have come up to me over all these years that this book has been out, and they're like, I love their bedroom. I wish I had a bedroom like this. And it's it just, I think there's something about it being sort of like Peter Pan-like, you know, that idea that like kids are just in a big puppy pile together. Right. It's an interesting emotional feeling that I think kids have when they talk to me about like wishing they had that because, you know, do they really? I don't know, but they feel like they want that. Marla Frazee, author of Boss Baby. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Marla Frazee talks about why she makes books for kids at the age just before they can read. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. 
This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. For as long as stories have been told to children, there's been a tension between entertaining and educating them. Marla Frazee's primary goal is to delight her readers. And while she's willing to challenge conventional norms along the way, she doesn't feel pressure from the industry to do so. Not in that way, in my experience, although I know that the last few years there have been many, many conversations, and rightly so, about having more issues being covered and representation in children's books and stories. When I started to illustrate certain books that allowed for me to do this, I was really, it was important for me to put, you know, a lot of diversity and inclusion in the represented in the illustrations when I could. I think Boss Baby is a pretty good book to explain like why it wouldn't have worked then because like basically Boss Baby is about what it's like when you have a new little creature in your house who's like the boss of you. Who's getting all the attention, yeah. (laughs) Right. But it's also about sort of a patriarchal kind of system and that's what I was sort of playing off of. In which case it had to be a white male boss. I mean, what's interesting, I did do a book, um, you know, after Boss Baby called The Bossier Baby, in which, you know, there's a little girl, that sibling that comes in and supplants the Boss Baby. And it was interesting to see the little girls, you know, Tabitha and Tina in the in this Boss Baby family business. But basically, like, this, the heart of the story in, in the film is still about Ted and Tim and their relationship, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. And in the book, however, it was the subtext was sort of the patriarchal breaking apart of having this little girl boss come in and sort of get rid of the the guy. Also, just what happens when you have a little sibling. Another question about your writing is writing to delight children versus writing to educate them. Do you feel some compelling obligation in both areas? I don't feel any obligation to educate them at all. I feel 
a very strong obligation, however, to tell a story that means something to them and me. If I have something to say, if something means something to me, it's going to mean something to them, just because that's sort of where you kind of find the universal theme. But I really am so lucky that I get to work with children as my audience, because especially as an illustrator who tells stories with pictures, sometimes in my books, I'm writing the story too. Sometimes I'm illustrating somebody else's story. Sometimes I have wordless books that don't have any words. And so I think, well, children read pictures better than we do. They, they're way better at it than adults are. And and so when I know like children are going to be looking at these pictures and they're going to be following the story, I know I can put in all kinds of levels of subtlety or secondary things that just an adult would miss, but kids will see it. And I also know that they will read the pictures at a much higher level of understanding than they could read words like at their age. They're they're better at reading pictures and they take it in differently. So I never think, I wish I was telling stories to grown-ups. You know, I, I really love the idea of telling stories to children at the age, pretty much before they learn how to read. That's sort of my sweet spot. And I don't think they need to be educated. I think they just need stories to kind of identify with and look to, to make sense of, of their world in a, in a way to help them like, oh, I feel like that too. I think that's pretty much what I, that's where I go when I'm trying to figure out if this, if whatever I'm working on is, is going to res resonate. It's more about resonating with a child. Like, is it, do, are they going to care? Mm -hmm. And then can I keep them interested? Yeah, their attention, yeah. And once you have their attention, then, you know, you've kind of got them if you, if I care about, you know, making sure that it makes sense, which is, is sort of more what I'm, you know, whatever I'm trying to do, does this make sense to them if they were to look at it. And so, you know, it, it's all on me if they can't understand what, I, what I'm doing. I want to tell you my Sendak story really quickly. Um, I'm in an apartment building in New York, a very desirable building, beautiful building in the village. And I'm, I'm on the verge of buying an apartment there. And uh, this is before I was married. And I wanted uh, a decent size. And so the apartments on the floor, there was a good size one, two or three bedrooms. And then there were two apartments across the hall, which was probably the same apartment broken up into two apartments. And they show me the one apartment. And I say, uh, that's beautiful. And they said, but the woman who owns it, she's divorced. She's never here. She'll probably sell it to you. And I said, what about the other one? across the hall from the main apartment, so to speak, were the two smaller ones. She said, well, that's not on the market. I said, well, is there any way we could contact the owner? And she said, no, no, I, I, I'm not allowed to do that. I would not, I would not uh, recommend you do that, nor would I want to facilitate that. And then finally, the time came when she said to me, I think there's an opportunity here for you to talk to the owner. I've spoken to him, and uh, he's very private, and uh, he has this apartment for many, many years, and he told me that he is prepared to discuss this with you uh, theoretically, and it was Maurice Sendak. Oh, my goodness. And I get Maurice Sendak on the phone at his home in <laughs> Connecticut, and I have one of the funniest conversations I've ever had with another person in my life. In the background, you hear a child screaming and being uh, disciplined, and, and he's yelling at his mother. And I said, what's that sound in the background? He goes, that's my housekeeper. 
He had a very elegant voice. He said, that's my housekeeper, Mr. Baldwin. He said, my housekeeper, that's her child, her son, who comes to work with her now and then. He said, Mr. Baldwin, I am a rather well-known writer of children's books. I have a reputation for writing children's books. But the truth of the matter is, I don't really like children at all. <laughs> and I have no use for them, and I prefer when they're not around. <laughs> I thought, what a thing to say. Then I said to him, when we got to the business end of it, and he was so kind to me and so lovely, and he said to me that his partner had just died, and he said, in order to make this uh, work with you, I'd have to go in there and, and go through everything. And he goes, and I'm not ready to do that. Uh, he yeah. said, I can't unpack my life with my partner. And when I'm ready to do that, I'll let you know. Yeah. And then by then, I found another apartment that I bought in Nero, just And then he died, Sendak. But he was, when yeah. he said, he said, I just prefer when <laughs> the children are not around. Yeah, that sounds very Sendakian. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> now, have you noticed changes in parenting trends as they're reflected in themes in children's books? You know, I, I definitely think they are. One of the things about children's books that's interesting, and Sendak was like amazing at this very thing, which is you can't really date his books. You know, they're just as much of the moment now as when he did them however many decades ago, some of them. Timeless. Timeless. And when you look through them, you know, a bed, like the bedroom in Where the Wild Things Are, for instance, is a very odd children's bedroom. It doesn't, it looks sort of like a hotel, a generic hotel room. Like there isn't anything in there that you'd think, oh yeah, well that was from like 1964. You know, it just looks, it kind of says what it needs to say, bed, table, you know, window, cake. That sort of is my hope with my work is that it has a timelessness because like the kids that may read it now are going to grow up and hopefully share the book with you want them to be sharing it with their kids. And so I really try very hard to not date the book so that it, it will resonate. Is there something you've written in the last several years that you wouldn't write again now? You wouldn't write it now? I don't. And I, I think it's I mean, I'm really proud of each of the books that I've done, and I feel like they're each a part of what I was going through when I did them. And so it's sort of a chunk of where I was in my life and what was going on in the world. And I mean, in terms of like the pandemic, I am certain that books and everything, parenting and education will be different. But how, I don't, I don't know how. I do know that the book on my drawing table right now, the one I've been working on this year, is different for me because it's sort of a, and I know I couldn't have done it without having gone through the last year and a half. So it's just, it just feels very organically part of what we've all been through. Whether that resonates when the book finally comes out, whether we're going to be, you know, past whatever the emotional issues are right now, who knows? But I know that in the making it, I kind of have to be feeling sort of a certain compulsion to do it right now, right. whenever that right now is. Well, let me just say that I look forward to the possibility of Boss Baby 3. <laughs> maybe we have an environmental theme. Maybe we clean up the Amazon. Maybe we do something to save the planet. I'm very grateful to you. Doing the two films has been one of the highlights of my career, and I owe a lot of that to you. So thank you. Thank you. Children's author and illustrator, Marla Frazee. 
This episode was produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. 